Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Critical Drinker. He's a movie critic, an analyst of modern entertainment media, and a YouTuber. Cinema is no longer about entertainment. It's now a platform for social and cultural ideologies to be pushed through. If you don't like what Hollywood execs are telling you to like, too bad. That's your prejudice showing. You bigot. Today, expect to learn why there are no positive heroic role models in movies anymore, the problem with Velma getting naked on a cartoon, why Rotten Tomatoes reviews are diverging more than ever before, why Matt Damon was always right, just how destroyed Rick and Morty is as a franchise, and much more. Reflecting on this, I, I really would hate to be in the movie business at the moment, but one of the big signs of positivity, a glimmering light in this sort of heap of feces, is that according to Critical Drinker, because of the lead time between making stuff and when it gets published, in about three years or so, we should actually have a ton of good new movies uh, and TV shows. So uh, hold on tight, because good stuff is coming. This episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90 day money back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Critical Drinker. Welcome to the show. Hey, man. Good to be here. What is your background? Tell me how you end up getting interested in critiquing movies. Oh, gosh. Um, right. What's the short version here? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, like, from being a, a young kid, like, I, I was always just fascinated by movies, and I was fascinated by, like, the, the way that the stories worked. You know, the way that they would introduce us to the different characters, the way that they were structured so that... You know, you had that that well-defined like uh, build-up of action, and then the the sort of catastrophe that leads you to the lowest point, and then the big resolution at the end to give you that dramatic high that that finishes it off. Like, I remember being a, even as a kid, I started to recognize that pattern in movies, and it was something that kind of interested me, um, and it led me into wanting to do storytelling of my own eventually, and so I got into writing novels, that sort of thing, um, and obviously YouTube came along and. Um, you know, I was interested in the idea of, of starting to break that down and critique things a little bit. Um, you know, my my early videos were shockingly amateurish, but, you know, it was just fun. It was a fun, like, experience to get used to it, get used to editing videos, all that sort of stuff. Um, 
yeah, obviously I took a break from that to actually focus on my writing career for a good long while. Uh, and then a few years ago, I decided to come back and um, start doing it again. And uh, gosh, I just uh, really got into character one time as the drunken critical drinker. Uh, I think it was after a few glasses of Jack and I noticed I was slurring my words and I just thought, what the hell, I'm just going to I'm going to embrace it and lean into it. And uh, that video just went viral, man. Like within uh, a few days, it had like a million views and suddenly my channel exploded. And that's that's what got me started on the path I'm on now, I suppose. So it worked out well. What was the well. first video that, uh, that kicked off? I think it was about Captain Marvel. Um, so that would have been about three years ago now. Um, it was, yeah, I, I think because there was such a media circus around that movie. Um, you know, all the, the talk about, oh, finally we're getting a female superhero and all that nonsense. And I just thought, gosh, this is all a bit silly. And um, it kind of really just conveniently forgets all the great characters that we'd had up until then. And I thought, I'll just do a sarcastic video saying, I totally agree with this while showing, you know, all these awesome female characters through all the different decades. And for whatever reason, that just absolutely blew up. So that was my that was my first taste of YouTube success, I suppose. I looked at an article earlier on that identified the divergence in Rotten Tomatoes uh, critics and audience scores, and they have never been further apart on average, yeah. according to the data science that was done by this. So as an example, critics loved and audiences loathed Star Wars The Last Jedi, which was 49% divided. And audiences mm -hmm. loved and critics loathed Venom, which was 51% divided. In 2022, the gap between audience and critic scores on Rotten Tomatoes has become bigger than ever. Audiences have given the top 10 movies on average score more than 19 points higher than critics. By far the biggest difference this century. The only two of this year's 10 movies where audiences and critics are even close was Top Gun Maverick and The Batman. What do you think that says mm -hmm. about the state of modern movies? I think they're not making people happy. I think people are watching them and they're coming away fundamentally unsatisfied. And the critics that I guess they used to kind of trust because they would generally agree on movies because I think the, the actual quality of films was better but 10, 20 years ago. Uh, now they're diverging because they're beginning to realize that uh, these critics that they used to trust are basically just paid to, to give positive reviews and you know it's in their interest to be positive because it allows them to keep getting access to film premieres to get in all those little lovely goodie baskets and stuff that studios send you if you're a professional critic uh and you know that that's what they go on um and so there's now this realization of wow these people are really full of crap and i can't trust their opinions on anything uh and so yeah i'm glad that it's finally happened i'm glad people have woken up to like really how, how rotten that entire industry is. I think rotten tomatoes is a, a good term for it. There is a situation, though, when critics are poorly reviewing films and the audience is reviewing a film well. So this isn't a case of the critics cozying up to some studio. What's going on there? I think in those cases, it may be a case of ideological um, persuasion in that uh, generally when in that movies, happens... In the movie world, surely not. It Who would have thought? Be. I think generally when that happens, it's a case of a movie which uh, doesn't align with the current uh, ideology of Hollywood. And um, audiences generally lap that up because, man, most people are just, they're not left wing, they're not right wing, they're just in the middle. And when they go to the movies, they just want to be entertained. That's all they want. And when they get a movie that gives them that, uh, they generally love it. But then the critics, 
They don't love it because it's not it's not spouting the the ideology that they've been taught that they have to uh, that they have to agree with and that they have to promote at any cost. And so, yeah, that's generally when that happens. It's interesting, right? Because movies for a long time were a good vehicle that could be used to put forward an important social movement narrative. It was a, a way of communicating to the masses in an entertaining and subtle way that this is something that you might have to think about. But it does seem more and more flagrant, more and more mask off, less subtle, and mm. more almost uh, like being flagellated, like being whipped by the film. I, I Yeah, I don't get it. In a lot of cases, I don't get why people would want to watch them. You know, it's, uh, what can I liken it to? Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose the classic example is something like The Last Jedi from Star Wars. Uh, if, you, if you go watch that, it's like, you know, I guess I just have to accept now that all white men are just awful at everything and they suck. And that's just, that myself included, you know, so I should just hang my head in shame for the rest of my life. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a strange, um, it's a strange sort of, uh, offering that they're giving us now where we're going to actively hate you as a as a art form you know we're going to make it our business to make you feel awful about yourself and if you dare to push back on that and uh, and reject the offering that we're giving you uh then we just we label you as a bigot or a reactionary or whatever you know stupid term we label people with these days uh there's no actual engagement with criticism anymore and it's uh, it's a frustrating thing, but then again, I feel like more and more people are just kind of seeing through that now. They've they've like you say, the mask is off, and um, it's becoming very obvious how biased and you know uh, tilted in one direction it is. Uh, I think you know that that TV show that they came, that came out recently, Velma. I don't know if you've heard about that, but it's it's like this weird. Uh, attempt to reboot the whole Scooby-Doo thing that we watched when we were kids, you know, the kids' cartoon. Um, now it's told from the point of view of Velma, and it's all about, like, every character has been race-swapped, everyone's gay now, uh, the the only character that's been kept as a white guy is Fred, who's now the butt of every single joke. He's an idiot, uh, he can't do anything for himself, all that stuff. And it's like it's like a parody of uh, of the kind of uh, messages that they were putting out, you know, a few years ago, uh, but it's so over the top and ridiculous that it's like every pe- every person from every side of the argument is hating on it. <laughs> I just think it's really funny. Well, I mean, if you were a well-meaning moderate left liberal person, and this was the popular media that was supposed to represent your side, I would be mm. so ridiculously embarrassed. I. It's worse to have your point of view or your side of the aisle be misrepresented by this, like, woke... It's like a parasite that's just embodied what used to be quite a loved institution. Scooby-Doo was legendary, right? When we were kids, Scooby-Doo was pretty I think it was just, it was it was just innocent fun, you know? And I think that's, that's what people took it as. And now it's like, God, it, from what I've heard, because I only watched the first couple of episodes and I was done. But even then, it's like, it's got... 15-year-old girls in the shower room, you know, like, full-on nude. It, it's got, like, um, Velma, who's, like, again, the same age, uh, in a strip club. It's like, what are you... What are you showing us? What are you doing with this? And it's like, 
I, I have to question the mindset of the people who have written this and created it and the executives that signed off on it. This has got to be borderline, you know. This is really distasteful stuff now. And it's like this all came from a, a goofy kids TV show from the nineteen seventies about like bunch of bunch of college students that went around solving mysteries. Like, why why are you doing this? Well, we've seen the Awful. same thing with She Hulk, right? That was sort of pretty mask off in terms of how that got repurposed and the worst one that i've seen recently was uh doctor strange 2 i watched that on a plane before anybody on youtube had had chance to do a summary explaining why i shouldn't watch it even on a Mm. plane and i got sideswiped by uh yeah i watched a little bit of she hulk and then bailed out but i watched all of doctor strange 2 because i was literally trapped in a tin box flying at thirty five thousand feet but, um, yeah, you'll watch yeah, pretty much anything when you're on a long haul flight, won't you? <laughs> Correct. Um, but I mean, it was it, it's the same tenor with that, right? It's, I don't know, it's just not, it, it doesn't feel subtle anymore. There's no progression to the characters, especially if they're female or from a minority. And this is something that I really enjoyed talking to Baggage Claim about, which is that it patronizes women because it basically makes them out to be incapable of ever dealing with any challenge. They can't overcome anything. They are perfect as they are. I mean, there's a moment yeah. in Doctor Strange 2 where zombie Benedict Cumberbatch goes back in time to tell America Chavez, the South American daughter of two women, that she just needed to believe in herself all along. That is the running theme when it comes to these female characters, and it's such an unhealthy message to send to people. Um, you know, even like taking our personal opinions out of the equation, that it's like you know trying to make out that women are just perfect at everything, which you know we're all human; none of us are perfect. Um, it's teaching people that you shouldn't need to strive to improve yourself. You shouldn't need to struggle, and when you come across uh, challenges or adversity. The rest of the world just needs to accept that you're amazing the way you are. Uh, imagine if people took that to heart and tried to take that lesson out into the world and apply it to their lives. It would be disastrous for them. They would just get hit with like failure after failure. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it used to be such a, a much more inspiring message that movies gave you about the, the power of self-improvement, of, of rising to challenges and struggling. Uh, and, you know, maybe failing and making mistakes, but learning from them and becoming better as a result. Um, that was a great thing to teach people because that's how you progress in life, you know. Um, so, yeah, to, to try and do that, it's not only is it patronizing, but it's really counterproductive for people. Especially given that a lot of the lessons that people learn about how to exist in the world come from popular media. You know, especially given that these are movies that ostensibly are supposed to help people who perhaps don't come from the perfect sort of background. Maybe they haven't had an amazing parental household giving them all of the worldly wisdom that they should do to be able to navigate through. Okay, so you are going to, in some regard, like as a movie studio, be a surrogate parent almost, or like a sage or a grandparent in some regard to pass down. These are some kind of timeless truths that you can hold on to. And the timeless truth is, if you're a 15-year-old mixed-race investigator coming out of high school with a talking dog for a friend, get naked in the shower and go to a strip club. That seems to be the lesson. Um, And yeah, like, it's, again, to talk about messaging in movies, you know, 
as you said there, there used to be this acknowledgement that uh, the the older generation had wisdom to impart to the younger generation who were just coming up. You know, they can teach them the lessons that they learned in their lives, and you know, give them something to to prepare them for the challenges that they were going to face. Uh, that was a a timeless kind of universal concept because that's how people generally get by in life. You can learn things from your elders. Um, but again, there seems to be this movement now in modern movies to do away with that and say that uh, the older generation have nothing to teach you. There's nothing useful you can learn from them. Uh, you're just, like I say, you're great the way you are. People just need to acknowledge your awesomeness. Um, and, you know, particularly if that older mentor type figure happens to be a man. Yeah, there's no way he's not allowed to teach you anything. Uh, and you you touched upon this with um, Multiverse of Madness, like Doctor Strange 2. There was a bit in uh, the TV show WandaVision, which is the one that just leads into Doctor Strange. Um, and people were asking, well, why is he not there? Surely that's the, exactly the kind of situation he should be involved in because he's, he's a magic guy. And Kevin Feige, the guy who runs Marvel, said, uh, well, it, it would look bad if we had a white man coming in to show Wanda how to use her powers. That's the mentality. He's not allowed to do that because he's the wrong sex and he's the wrong ethnicity. That's the we're we're basically living with like this this weird new age like segregationism in in movies. There's there's like a a set of rules and laws that these movies have to adhere to now when it comes to their storytelling, and this is just one of the rules. Can't have a, a guy, especially a white guy, teaching a female character anything valuable. He has to be dumb and he has to be useless and she has to be better than him at everything. Fair enough, but like that's it's like trying to tell a story with with an arm with one arm tied behind your back. You know, you're crippling the the, the writer's ability to tell a good story because you're putting so many rules on them to to try and appease all the ridiculous demands of all the people on social media now who get offended by everything that you cripple your ability to tell a story. So, it's also the yeah. same when it when it comes to getting awards. Didn't I hear you talk about the fact that you're only eligible for uh, certain awards if you have the right kind of representation, both in front of the camera, behind the camera, in terms of the studio and stuff? Yeah, the Academy, um, like for the Oscars, um, straight up published their guidelines, basically saying you, your movie isn't even eligible to be considered for an Oscar unless it's got X percentage of, of uh, ethnic minorities, X percentage of women, X percentage of LGBT people, uh, all of that stuff. That is now the defining factors in whether or not your movie is even eligible for consideration for an, an award of any kind. And again, I just have to ask, like, why? Like, how, do, how does that improve the quality of a film by just demanding that certain people have to be involved in it? You know, it, it, God forbid you would just hire people based on how good they were in uh, their jobs. You know, and what that's not going to get any better. Yeah. What, so I'm going back to the conversation, especially around men. Um, why do you think Hollywood hates men so much at the moment? Uh, probably a guy named Harvey. Like, that was definitely part of it, who who was obviously, you know, he, he got caught out, uh, obviously did a lot of terrible things and, and rightly got, uh, you know, in prison for it. Uh, but the, the result was this seismic you know, shockwave that went through Hollywood and it just became from that point, uh, we, we can't have, we can't have men in sort of positions of power. We can't have, uh, like traditional strong masculine men. 
uh, in in lead roles anymore. And if if you ever get a character like that, they almost always become the butt of a joke. You know, it's always like, <laughs> look at this guy thinking he's like Macho Man or whatever, and then he fails at something. Uh, it, oh, it's like, always uh, the same. Like Thor. Yeah, yeah, like Thor, big muscly guy, just becomes an absolute goofy clown. Because isn't it funny to laugh at them? Uh, you know, how many times have you seen a man get kicked in the balls in a in a Disney movie? It's funny, isn't it? It's really funny when that happens. Not so funny when it happens to you, though. Um, and again, you know, you re- reverse the genders there. Like, if you showed a woman getting kicked in the crotch, like, suddenly it's not funny anymore. You know, like, the the it would have been a thermonuclear explosion on social media if that was ever shown. On a in a in a mainstream movie, particularly if it was shown for laughs, it's not going to happen. But it's okay when it happens to men, you know. It's just this weird double standard, and I think it it partly, you know, a big part of it is a result of like Harvey and all that crap, um, and a part of it is just a a shift in the kind of culture in Hollywood that I think was perhaps happening anyway. Um, just trying to this constant drive to like redefine masculinity, which you know often means like getting some skinny you know fourteen year old dude and putting him in a dress and like saying this this is masculinity now like yeah sure it is like whatever um, but yeah that that kind of dual almost pincer movement of like cultural change within Hollywood and reaction to to things that have been exposed within their own ranks. It's just been, um, you know, men, masculine male heroes are not a viable commodity in movies at the moment, you know. Uh, But that's why you get, like, something... I I was just going to say, that's why when you get the occasional movie that does dare to show them, they usually do really well because people have been starved of this stuff for years. What would be some examples of that? Like Top Gun? Probably, yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty good example. Um. Yeah, it was like it was a movie that's combined all of those things together. Like we were talking about, you know, the the aging mentor who would normally be a subject of mockery. Uh, you know, a different director, a different writer would have portrayed Maverick as completely over the hill and you know getting outclassed by all these young people who are who are faster and better than him. No, this movie dared to say, and it was probably partly because Tom Cruise and he's got an ego on him. Saying, no, he's still good at what he does. And you know what? He's got way more experience than you. He's been there and done that. And he can kick your ass if he wants to. He's still able to do that. Uh, and look what it did. $1.5 billion. It was the biggest movie of the year by far. And all these Marvel properties that used to dominate and, and you know, absolutely wipe the floor with everything else, they were trailing far behind. And it was I was very happy to see that. It pleased me. <laughs> I so I watched I've flown a lot over the last year so almost all of the movies that I've seen have been on planes and I mm. really enjoyed Top Gun but I didn't think it was ridiculous I would have given it maybe a like a 7 point f- uh, probably an 8 probably an 8 on the tomato meter mm. I think I would have given it so still good but kind of shows that the bar isn't exactly set superbly high no it, that's to- your yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, we are just living in a world where the movies that we're getting are so terrible that anything that's just borderline okay is suddenly hailed as a masterpiece. You know, that that's it. Like, it's it's lowered expectations. And so this is what you get. You know, movies Actually, that... Actually, maybe it's a TV really sh- smart... It's a, maybe it's a really smart strategy 
from the movie studios to just get everybody's expectations so low that they can lowball us with something that's brilliant. I mean, I don't think so because, well, it's not like they can't produce good movies. They were doing it for decades. But then if you look back to like your favorite movies of all time, I, I'm willing to bet that none of them are um, newer than about 20 years old. You know, they're, they're probably all from the, the, the 2000s, the early 2000s, um, back through the 90s, the 80s, the 70s. Um, I don't think there'll be anything from the past 10, 15 years because they're, they're, you know, they've become lazy. They, they've become lazy. Um, they have started relying on big tentpole movies, particularly remakes, particularly, uh, reboots of things, endless superhero movies. You know, that's the, been the money makers and it's just inspired this culture of laziness in them. What's going on with how many reboots and remakes are happening at the moment? Is it just that it's too much of a risk to try and start a new franchise? I think it's... On paper, doing a a reboot or a remake of something uh, is... It should be a winning strategy because you should, in theory, have instant access to that devoted fan base who just want to see their favorite property brought back. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, and so financially, it seems to make sense. The The problem is that you can't often capture lightning in a bottle. You know, it, it, something like Ghostbusters, classic movie. We all loved it back in the day. Uh, it worked because, you know, a bunch of really good creative talents all came together, had a great script, a uh, great director. Everything just worked perfectly. You know, they tried to do it for the second one back in the 90s. Uh, yeah, it wasn't very good. Uh, and then you got Ghostbusters 2016. Well, we all know how that turned out. <laughs> you know? We're gonna we're gonna reboot it for modern audiences, uh, capitalizing on the Ghostbusters name, and look what happened. <laughs> it was a flop, you know. But it happens over and over again. But it's like they're always trying to uh, recapture that lightning in a bottle from these these past successes because, um, well, movies are expensive to make now, particularly if you're dropping two hundred million dollars on a film. Damn, man, that's a lot of money to invest. You want a pretty solid guarantee that it's going to be successful. And it used to be that that was, you know, that was a pretty good way of doing it. You know, you can market it as we're going to, we're going to bring back this great franchise that we've got a huge fan base for. Everyone will be happy. Did you see that clip of Matt Damon on First We Feast or Hot, Hot Wings where He's talking about why modern movies seem to be less adventurous. Have you seen this clip? Do you know what I'm talking about? I, I have, yeah, because it's like he's uh, he's crying while eating this stuff. <laughs> I don't it's know if this the is like environment. Yeah, I don't know if this is almost like how you inject people with like you know truth serum and stuff. Like their mind is so fogged by the pain of the the, the hot wings that like they're they're just going to spit out straight on truths. Um, I'm trying to remember what exactly he said during that. So he scene. says that. The death of DVD sales has meant that movie oh. studios can't be as venturous anymore. That you basically got a second bite at the yes. apple of being able to make yeah. money. It might not win at the box office, but it can kind of be this ascending underground victory. Uh, and he uses this example of someone that said, it's going to cost me uh, $25 million for this. Half of it goes to this. I need to double the spend on that. So I need $100 million to make the money back. And the only way I'm going to do that is through DVD sales. What's your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, that's very true. Um, there was very much the long tail of sales that would come after the theatrical release. And uh, yeah, there's been plenty of movies that, um, you know, they didn't make their budget uh, when they were in movie theaters, but they ultimately became profitable years later just through DVD sales and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, there's there's absolutely something to be said for that. Um, yeah, it's it's I guess it's just a different world, you know, um, with streaming. Obviously, that's radically altered the equation. Um, you know, the moment something gets released onto streaming, it's going to be on on the high seas, and that's going to take a huge chunk of your revenue as well. And people just getting it for free. Um, and yeah, I, I guess. There, there's just this general climate of risk aversion. You know, what is the things that makes money at the moment? Um, the other thing I was going to say is the the death of the sort of mid-budget movie. They don't really exist anymore. You know, there used to be a time when you would get your big, you know, blockbusters that was like $100 million budget. Uh, you would get your little indie movies that were done for practically nothing. But then you would get in-between films that had like 20, 30 million allocated to them. Not a huge amount, but then they don't have to make a huge amount in order to become profitable. And they're a little bit creative and a little bit outside the box, um, which you you can't afford to do with uh, with $200 million on the line. So I think that's been a big change as well. One thing that I definitely hadn't considered was that Harvey Weinstein might have been the gateway drug or the pebble at, pebble at the top of the avalanche that caused downstream from this for a bunch of other problems to occur. I understood that it is not particularly popular at the moment to uphold men, particularly white men, as being competent in in the media. I didn't realize that this would be this sort of pincer movement, two-pronged attack, both coming from the internal milieu that's happening inside of the studios in the production world generally and then also being fed back up from what's happening in society as well that's quite interesting i think as well like we now are past the time when writers in hollywood actually lived lives you know if you went back to the the 70s and 80s uh, in hollywood the these writers man most of them had lived a life like they might have fought in vietnam or something uh they they probably came from rough upbringings they had to fight their way to get into hollywood and uh you know probably just had interesting life experience that they could bring forward to their their writing on screen um <coughs> the writers that you get now they would go on to some um you know oh. <laughs> So that is, that sound is, I'm currently in Austin, Texas, and there's been a freeze storm overnight, which means that every tree has got water on it, which then freezes, and then the trees snap. So I may go outside of here and find that there's a tree that's fallen, but the roof seems to be okay at the moment, so we will, we will continue. Damn. Going. I'm not dead yet. All right, we'll keep I'm going. Well, as long as, as long as you're alive, we'll keep going. All right. Um, yeah, the, the, so the writers now, like their career path is basically uh, either mummy um, or daddy is already in the industry and so I get straight in or I go to some liberal arts college where I'm taught to hate, you know, white people and, and men and stuff for four years, um, then get into Hollywood. I say all the right things uh, about down with the patriarchy and stuff and I just get hired. And so... Um, I don't have any life experience. I've never faced adversity. I've never had to struggle for anything in my entire life. And uh, I don't know how to bring that forward into my characters. And so 
the the things I know how to write about are you're awesome the way you are because you've already succeeded because I've succeeded from from doing very little uh, and that's that's how they that's how they rationalize life um and so again you know it it all feeds into this this culture i guess that we have now in hollywood of narcissism of selfishness of um you know i'm the most important thing in the world and i'm perfect uh and you know it, it's not about improving yourself anymore it's not about taking on challenges it's just about everyone else accepting you for what you are right now i've also heard you talk about why it's unpopular for men to be seen as stoic anymore mm. what's your insight there well again yeah um a stoic man is a toxic man in the minds of hollywood writers whereas i see it as like a necessary um survival skill really <laughs> throughout most of human history like you you can't have everyone uh be high strung emotional idiots who just go to pieces the moment like things start going wrong there needs to be stoic people who can deal with problems um logically and don't complain all the time about things you know it's people used to live hard lives i guess that's the the point i'm making previous generations would be shocked and appalled by how easy we have it now but they they used to struggle and they used to have to put up with a lot of hardship and you developed stoicism as a result of that that's what allowed you to deal with it because you couldn't sit and complain all the time because there was no one co to complain to. You had to get on and do things. Um, <clears throat> we don't live in that world now. And so that idea of stoicism, the stoic man um, who who gets things done and who doesn't complain about it, um, that is seen as a toxic relic of a different time. And I think particularly because of the, the writers that you have, you've either got women now in Hollywood um, who don't, who are threatened by that, or you have effeminate men who've never endured hardship, uh, who are envious of that. And so either side wants to destroy it and get rid of it and mock it because they don't understand it. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's what you have now. You don't get stoic male characters. They have to be constantly joking. They have to be constantly like doing the, the goofy, um, self-conscious, ironic humor about themselves. They usually have to mess things up. Like, it's just, uh, I don't know about you. I just, that's not the kind of men that I've known in my entire life. Like, they, they don't act like that. That's a caricature Hollywood bullshit version of what a man is meant to act like. But that's, what they, that's what they come up with. It's not accurate the way that women act either. Most of the women that I know, especially the ones that I respect and admire, can deal with difficult things. They can go through exactly. hardship. And it's not being... a, it's not a unique yeah it's not a uniquely male trait uh in the slightest and you know it's not that uh women would be expected to to be you know super feminine and and uh you know hyper emotional about everything not at all um there there's usually a little bit of granular sort of variation between them for sure um but again their idea of like writing a strong female character now is just someone who's a total asshole who is like super aggressive, super domineering, wins every argument, never gets challenged on anything, um, doesn't have any compassion or anything for for other people. Uh, again, that's that's not really how I've known women to act. You use this really good example of the animated Mulan movie compared with the 
live action remake that they did. And in the original one, the girl that joins this fighting force is smaller and doesn't have experience and needs to work incredibly hard to overcome her physical limitations of being physically smaller than everybody else. And she has to use ingenuity and uh, different tools and she has to be smarter and she has to work harder. And that invests you in the character. I care about her outcomes because an underdog story is one that you're always going to resonate with. And then it comes to the live action version, which is a girl pretends to be a guy because there aren't enough soldiers and then is simply better than everybody else because of some ineffable, inherent, embodied thing, like chi, the super chi, fem chi, mm. estrogen chi or something. And because of the estrogen chi, it means that she can win, beat people that have been doing it for much longer than her, that have worked harder than her. She doesn't have to go through any difficulty or any challenge, apart from people not believing in her primarily because of her gender, and then she can save the day. Like, that's not an empowering story. Any woman that thinks that that's an empowering story for your daughter to have doesn't have the same definition of empowerment that I do. Yeah, that's it's the perfect example, really, of the, the kind of uh, ridiculous thinking that you have now in movie making when it comes to writing characters like that. <coughs> like you say, the original gave you a, good, a great message, not just for little girls, but for anyone, really. Like, you might not always be the strongest, you might not be the fastest or whatever, um, but you can still prevail through through working hard, through ingenuity, through crea- creativity. All of those things can can help you overcome uh, limitations. Um, <coughs> but yeah, the, the modern movie is basically saying, you have no limitations, you're amazing. Just everyone else needs to accept how amazing you are. Uh, it's such a destructive message to give people. Because life is meant to be about improving yourself. It's meant to be about uh, trying and failing and picking yourself up and doing better next time. That's that's the point of it. I learned a new word a couple of weeks ago called fan baiting. Have you heard of this? Mm-hmm. Made a video about it, in fact. Uh, did you really? Explain to people who yeah. don't know what fan baiting is. So, in broad terms, fan baiting is the idea of um, we're going to create a new TV show or whatever. It's probably going to be an adaptation or a remake of something that you love. Uh, what we're going to do, though, is we're going to race and or gender swap most of the characters. Uh, we're going to make a huge deal out of the fact that we're doing that. Uh, and we're basically saying to the fans of this this franchise, hey, we're, we're changing everything that you love. Doesn't it make you mad? Don't you want to? Don't you want to lash out? Don't you want to criticize us? Go on, do it, do it. See what happens, and that's what happens. You know, people rise to the the bait. Uh, they get mad about it. Inevitably, some people will go too far, and they will be genuine sexists or racists. Uh, they'll say things that are very inappropriate, uh, and those people get they, those comments that they make get caught. They get captured. They get uh, spread out for everyone to see by the the actual company that's doing this, the studio. And they'll say, look, this fan base is toxic. The the only people that hate this product are racists and sexists. Uh, You don't want to be like that, do you? You don't want to be one of those people. You want to be a good person. You want to support the thing that we're doing, don't you? Support it. Just, Just go along with it. And that's it. That's what it is. It shames people into supporting something which is fundamentally shit. It's fan baiting. It baits people into doing the thing that they want so that they can they can trumpet it as, well, we're just on the right side here and everyone else who criticizes our product is on the wrong side. That's all it is. There is 
only so far that you can push people through guilt and shame to be able to do something. It's a, an interesting analogy with some of the issues that came up in the early 2010s <clears throat> when uh, Fifty Shades had done really, really well as a novel and the dark romance genre generally was taken off, everything was great. But there were some concerns that uh, the kind of erotica novels that women were buying were showing a very competent, very assertive, very dominant protagonist in The Man. Uh, so what they did was they tried to replace those men on the front cover with much more kind, gentle, more agreeable, less dominant men. And guess what? They didn't sell well, right? The heart wants what the heart wants. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, dude, your your money and your arousal are two things that you don't tend to give away without actually genuinely wanting to. And the fan yeah. thing is so fascinating. We saw this with, uh, what was that? Th- bros? Boy? What was it? Bros? The, bros, yeah, like, bros. I- Yes, which I never watched it, but I know. Yeah, yeah, I know the director basically was like, you know, if if you don't watch this, you're a bigot, and it's like that's just mask off, like straight up. It's the equivalent of basically getting down on your knees and begging people to watch your your show or your TV or your movie. You know, Uh, it's pathetic and it's sad and it's just it really exposed how bad that stuff was. So I understand your rationale, saying that. Movie studios are concerned about losing money, which means that they do something that they think is going to be both socio-politically popular and they're rebooting and remaking existing franchises because that seems to be an easier way to go. But surely the type of turnout that we've been seeing at the cinema, especially post-pandemic, right, which is going to have had a bit of an impact, but more so because movies don't seem that compelling and if the director is lambasting me for being too much of a homophobe to go and watch a gay rom-com that's that's definitely going to put me off no matter my predilection around that sort of a movie surely studios are eventually going to have to create things that people want to actually watch or else they're going to go broke like is there not hope in the future that the market is going to reform these production studios into making things that we actually want to see yeah there absolutely is um uh, the thing you have to keep in mind is that like all of this stuff has like a three-year lead time so like you're, you're watching movies now that are coming out in movie theaters they were commissioned in like 2019 because you know it takes a long time to make a film obviously <laughs> like you know you've got to script it you've got to cast people you've got to direct the thing you've got to shoot the thing uh, then do all your post-production, then get it on its slate, then get it marketed. So um, in a sense, what you're seeing in cinemas right now are ideas from like three years ago. And that's why we're still getting shit movies that, that do all this stuff. Because probably Hollywood has now recognized the, the mistakes that they made or they're starting to recognize it. Uh, and so the, they're starting to make those changes to their productions. But that's not going to come out for a couple more years. You know, it takes time. And this is why you you often hear from people saying it's going to get worse before it gets better because it probably will. You know, um, Warner Brothers is a great example of that. They have been losing money for years on their, their DC movies and stuff. Um, they brought in a guy called Walter Hamada who was wanting to take it in the, the super woke direction where you were going to do away with Superman, do away with Batman. They were going to get replaced by Supergirl and Batgirl. Um, and it was going to be them and Wonder Woman, like it was going to be all female. Um, I think they race swapped a couple of them as well. You know, all of that woke stuff just distilled into one perfect triumvirate of nonsense. Um, 
he's been fired. He, he, he's gone now. They brought in a guy called David Zaslov. He looked at all this stuff that was coming up and he was like, fucking no, and cancelled a whole bunch of it. Um, cancelled Batgirl when it was made. It was ready to go. They spent $100 million on this thing. And he's like, nope, it's so shit, it's not even going to get shown ever. It's going to in a vault. Nobody can ever see it ever. You know, Encase it in lead and drop it at the bottom of the Atlantic. Exactly, yeah. Like burn it and salt the ground and stuff. But that's, you know... That was that change of direction because they could no longer afford to indulge this nonsense because they were running out of money. They had to bring in a guy who was hard-nosed, a businessman who just uh, hopefully had an eye for making good quality films. And <coughs> it's happened to them. It's going to happen to other studios as well. It just takes time. That lead time thing is so interesting and I didn't think about it at all. I also know how long it takes to make video games and that mm-hmm. there is a maybe a concern you're talking maybe seven years between five and seven years to make a, a you know a pretty good game um i wonder whether computer games are going to go that way as well i would guess that the studios that make games are a little bit more in touch with what their core audience is after but you know there was a, a news story partway through last year saying that uh, the new GTA was going to feature lower rates of violence and it was going to restrict some of the things that you could do, which was going to be commensurate yeah. with more progressive understandings of social policy and a blah, blah, blah. They are going to get much more immediate feedback from their fans saying, fuck no, than you can from a cinema, I think. Yeah, it's like, know your audience, guys. Come on, you don't play a GTA game to be politically correct. <laughs> No, I mean, it's like, uh, yeah, they've spent 20 years allowing people to, like, shoot up entire streets worth of people, run folk over with cars, you know, murder prostitutes, whatever. All the, like, um, whatever depraved stuff people can come up with, you could probably do it in those games. Um, but that that was just part of the anarchic fun of them. And so to try and suddenly develop a social conscience now, it's like, oof, no, that's that's not why that people ship play has sailed. GTA. Rockstar. Yeah, you that can't you can't <laughs> you can't suddenly rebrand yourself as a responsible company like, you know, um restricting all this stuff. But yeah, I think the reaction was pretty severe. Um and I think with gaming um I, I'm trying to think what I can equate it to. Um there was some there was like the, the Battlefield games, you know, first person shooters, and they tried to release one called Battlefield Five a couple of years ago. Set during World War Two, but it had uh, women fighting on the front lines with uh, cybernetic arms and stuff. Um, Asian men fighting in the, you know, in the European battlefield against Germans. Uh, just you know, ridiculous. But it's like they tried. They put that in the trailer. They showed that stuff, and the reaction was apocalyptic. Like fans absolutely lambasted the game as ridiculous. Uh, and it's sold terribly as a result, you know. So the, these things can happen. The backlash works in some cases. What? So going beyond the interjection of race and gender and sexuality, it does also seem like there's a kind of a negative, very pessimistic tenor to a lot of movies as well that they don't seem to put across a lot of genuine hope. What do you think is going on there? Is that reflecting what? Our culture is like now is that impacting on culture is it just the fact that we're coming out of the back end of i don't know a, a period where people aren't feeling too happy 
I, I think so. I think uh, it ties into this idea of there's fewer just like heroic heroes, I suppose. Um, and there's there, there's not the kind of patriotic movies that I think you used to get. You know, if you if you look back to the 2000s, particularly, you know, um, for rather obvious reasons, you know, America was fighting the war on terror. Um, and so there was a need and a desire for <clears throat> heroism, for, for pro-American movies, for, um, you know, for just patriotism. Um, and that doesn't really exist now. Um, and I, again, I don't know if it reflects a kind of lack of confidence. I don't know if it reflects um, Hollywood's attitude to all things sort of American. Um, I, I don't know if there's weird associations there where it's like they, they feel like it's dangerous to be be too, you know, pro your own country. I'm not sure what the this, the idea behind it is. But yeah, I get what you're saying in that uh, there just doesn't seem to be that optimistic view of like the whole West, the, the whole idea of Western culture, I suppose. In movies, but they'll repurpose Fast and Furious Nine and Dumbledore Secrets of Albus or whatever it's called to make it appropriate for a Chinese audience. Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? When money's involved, um, yeah, man. I mean, I've we've seen it in f- ridiculous ways. Like they they try to market Black Panther to the Chinese who aren't very keen on the subject matter. And so they, they, they took Chadwick Boseman's face from the poster and put the, the Black Panther mask on him so you couldn't see what was underneath. You're kidding to make me. It ex- no, that, they straight me. up did that. They erased him from his own movie to try and make it more acceptable to Chinese audiences. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, I thought the days of kowtowing to China were done because... It seemed for a while, basically all Disney movies were getting banned there. They just couldn't get a release. And so you kind of thought, well, okay, maybe they'll just think, fuck it. Uh, If the Chinese won't accept us anyway, there's no point trying to pander to them. Let's do something really crazy, like be pro-America. You know, Uh, it's almost like we're an American company and like our whole, like Walt Disney's entire outlook on life was um, like a fondness for all things Americana. You know, he was a patriotic guy. He loved America. Um, be nice if they could live up to that. But nah, they seem to have struck some kind of deal. I think now that um, Bob Iger is now back in charge, they seem to have smoothed things out with the Chinese government. And I've heard, I could be wrong, uh, but these are the rumors that uh, all the Marvel cast, all the Marvel actors are now being um, sent on little training programs to teach them what's acceptable to say about China so that they don't say anything offensive. You know, they don't mention Taiwan or anything like that. So no one does a John Cena again. Yeah, exactly. And it's just John Uh, at the front. You you walk in and you've got Chris Hemsworth and you've got Robert Downey Jr. And then stood at the front in a teacher's outfit, you've just got... John Cena. (laughs) Don't end up like me. John Cena! And he comes with his entrance music. That's what I'm about. But that speech that he had to give uh and fair fair play for him you know to be able to speak mandarin but uh to have to basically grovel uh and plead forgiveness because he dared to suggest that taiwan was a country um my god it was one of the most humiliating things i think i've ever seen and i just think imagine if that had happened back in the the 80s or 90s 
You know what I mean? Like that would never have happened. But now this is the world that we live in. So, yeah, I mean, okay, so I, I, it's it's hilarious, and I've spoken about it a ton, and it is embarrassing and cringeworthy, and evidently just straight up capitalism in its worst form. However, if there was the risk of the entire studio that you were with and all of your cast members and all of the people that you'd worked with and every single person basically having 50% or 30% or something of their revenue hanging on whether or not you're prepared to say something in Mandarin for 90 seconds, the pressure is absolutely astronomical. I, I still think it's a super cringeworthy thing to do, but the uh, situation in which you wake up that morning and re- get the message from your manager or the studio saying, hi, mate, you shouldn't have said that about Taiwan. We need you to fix this. There is a lot of pressure. I, I think in that specific instance, because the movie was made with the idea that it was going to get released in China, and so like it would have been budgeted for that and so on, okay, there's not much you can do. Like If you've screwed up, you're going to have to try and fix it whatever way. But uh, you have to ask yourself, you know, if you're actually planning your movie in the first place, um, what's your better strategy here? Is it, you know, we we uh, forgo any kind of American patriotism and we kind of like incorporate weird uh, sort of pseudo communist like messaging into our movie to make it acceptable to China. So we get like an extra 20 percent revenue or do we go super patriotic for America and for <coughs> like pro Western culture and get like an extra 30 or 40 percent because people actually love uh what we've done over here i know which way i'd rather go you know i mean like i know which would be my preference but that's just me game of thrones finished the main series finished and pretty much everybody was disappointed with it which is a shame because your availability bias is always going to cause you to remember the most recent part of it you know if it if it had a shit season five and then come back and smashed everything after that, then we might have more fond memories of it. Um, how many seasons of House of the Dragon do you think it's going to take for people to feel fondly again about the Game of Thrones franchise? Because I certainly know, as a huge Game of Thrones fan, that after the first season of House of the Dragon being really, really enjoyable, I thought it was really cool, uh, it, it has dampened at least probably 50% of my bad feelings toward that entire sort of organization. What's your thoughts? I think we're almost there, actually. Yeah, I think uh, season one of House of the Dragon was really good. It surprised a lot of people. It surprised me. I I predicted it was going to be pretty shit. Uh, But it turned out to be really good, really smart, really well done. Uh, I think a good season two will cement it. And I think people will be back invested in the world of Game of Thrones. It's not like people aren't going to suddenly think that uh, season eight was great all of a sudden. And that's still a terrible thing. But <clears throat> they will at least be invested in the world of Westeros again. Um, so I think as long as they don't screw up season two, uh, they're they're laughing. And yeah, I must admit, it's a great comeback story. Nobody expected yeah, I, this. Uh, I agree, man. I it's the steaming pile of turd that was season eight can't be extinguished this late. That's already been burned to a crisp and like you say, salted the earth afterward. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's good. I listened, I've actually just finished, I think it's called a world of ice and fire or whatever, whatever the prequel book is that this series of house of the dragon is based on. So 
I, I got super into it and I was like, oh, I'm going to get the book and listen to it. One bad thing has been that I now know everything that happens in season two, three, and four, because obviously I yeah. read the book. Uh, but I'm also super excited because season two is way more exciting than season one, which is pretty cool. Uh, another thing, yeah. which I thought was a real surprise victory, another uh, airplane watch was Bullet Train. Yeah, Bullet I like Train, that. I thought was absolutely phenomenal. Just a good, good fun um, action comedy, you know. Uh, didn't take itself too seriously. Didn't demand too much. And I, I've, you know, I've said this many times on my channel. There's a lot to be said for a simple concept, well executed. And I think Bullet Train just does that perfectly. Nice, easy movie to watch. Um, does have some smart like moments in it with like how uh, things are set up in the early parts of the movie, and then they get your payoff later on. Uh, I thought the characters were really good. Um, really good fun. Um, I loved Orin uh, Tangerine. Um, yeah, everyone loves Tangerine in that movie. <laughs> it had that, um, it had that kind of snatch slash lockstock slash yes, uh, very much, yeah, style to it. Uh, yeah, very much did. Uh, it was kind of uh, yeah. I, I want more movies like that. I want Guy Ritchie to start making good movies again. Um, but yeah, uh, I think it was just. Uh, yeah, a well-executed movie. Um, didn't demand too much from anyone. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. It was nice. It had no messaging in it either. So that was nice. Steady way. And also, I mean, it's racially representative. There was a, a, a big black guy that liked Thomas the Tank Engine. There was a bunch of Asian people in there. There was a bunch of... I, I have now... I, I kid you not, I have now started to perceive the world in terms of Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> yeah, you know, I look at someone, someone who's been a total asshole. It's like, you're a diesel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay i i don't think i know my thomas the tank engine law isn't sufficiently deep for me to actually be able to use that effectively but maybe, maybe that's a, secret, a secret philosophy that i need to work out so something that i was disappointed by again from a plane journey uh was jurassic world dominion what went oh wrong God. there? everything i mean all of these Jurassic World movies are terrible as far as I'm concerned. They're all dumb. Uh, they're all derivative. They're just recycling the same ideas that we had in the very first movie in 90, 1993. I remember being a little kid and going to see Jurassic Park and I thought it was amazing. And it still is amazing. Um, but yeah, it's just a, a peak example of our lack of ideas, our, our Hollywood's lack of creativity. We're just going to recycle the same stuff over and over again. Um, so yeah, the, the, the whole concept of like the dinosaurs and stuff is played out, um, uh, bringing back the original cast was just a desperation move because they knew no one was going to care about this movie. But the moment you say, well, you know, Alan Grant and Ellie and, um, and Ian Malcolm, they're all going to be together again on screen. You know, there's a little bit of interest there, but they were so underused. It was really clear that the script had no idea what to do with them. They're just wandering around looking confused most of the time. Uh, so yeah, man, it was just, uh, it was a desperation move to, to try and milk a bit more money out of the Jurassic Park franchise. Um, there was not an ounce of creativity behind it. Um, and just monumentally dumb. Um, I, even now I think back to like the stupid locust plague and everything. I just think that, that, that didn't get an ounce of development. It was just a, a random idea that someone threw in. Awful. Yes. It does seem really lazy. I mean, I have driven 
an ATV, a four-wheel ATV, through the valley that the first ever helicopter shot coming into. I've driven an ATV through that valley in Hawaii, and it was sick. And it was me on my own, traveling on my own, and a ton of Chinese tourists. And I was screaming that theme tune to myself and they were looking at me. <laughs> and so I have very fond memories of the Jurassic Park franchise. You get to go through um what was the genetically engineered dinosaur from the first new one, the Indominus oh, yeah. Rex. Indominus Rex, yeah. Yes, so you know it's got the scratch marks on the inside of the wall where it tried to get out. You can drive mm. your little ATV through the door that's open. And you go through, and I'm like, this is like, this is really cool. And I do have fond memories of that first one, but it's gone very quickly downhill. They're kind of force-fed this random extra mother of the daughter that the daughter is not her daughter; it's a clone of her back into yeah. the film, even though nobody mentioned her for the entirety of and the first I, thing. And of course, she was secretly the one who developed everything, all the technology behind Jurassic Park. It's just no one thought to mention her back in the day, and it's like, yeah, classic retcon example. It's like, how, how dumb do you think we are? What Can you tell people the story of what happened with uh, Superman's lip when he was filming <laughs> the most recent... Uh, <laughs> I, learned this. I learned this from you. I learned this from you. Uh, to this day, I kid you not, I can look at pictures of Henry Cavill with that fake lip and it makes me laugh. But... Um, Okay, the the short version is they had done the original version of Justice League. Zack Snyder was directing it. Uh, The studio were unhappy because um, his previous movies hadn't done well. They wanted to lighten the tone. They wanted to make it funnier, all that stuff. Um, He couldn't do it, and then he he was forced to drop out the project because of a family um, tragedy. So they brought in Joss Whedon to lighten the tone, and he was basically told, fix this movie, turn it into the Avengers. Uh, And so that was going to require extensive reshoots you know they were going to have to bring up like all the actors shoot like you know loads of new footage uh to try and fix this movie and make it fun and and upbeat and all that uh so they they brought back ben affleck who was in the middle of a divorce and he was alcoholic at the time he hadn't trained in months and so he was about 30 pounds heavier uh looked like a completely different person so he was brought back in he, he literally his face changes from scene to scene like it's weird um, and they also brought back Henry Cavill, who was in the middle of shooting Mission Impossible Fallout, um, and he'd grown a sweet, sweet tash for that one, um, which was great. Um, but the, <laughs> I think it was Paramount who did it. They wouldn't um, give him permission to shave off his moustache so that he could wear a fake one, so they could do these reshoots. Um, <clears throat> so the only option was get him in Superman costume, um, with his moustache and everything, and then we'll just digitally remove it later. But again, because everything was done to these insanely tight timescales, they didn't have time to do it properly, and so you've just got this ridiculous mismatched mouth with like lips that don't line up, and oh, it's it's one of the saddest things I think I've ever seen, but it's also hilarious. I can't wait <laughs> until the day when I have a job where I've got a contractually obliged moustache. I feel like that's I, when you know that great. you've made it. I, I just love because he could so easily have worn a fake moustache and it would look 100% convincing. Like, actors do it all the time. But I honestly feel like the studio just wanted to be dicks 
and said, no, nah, oh, yeah, you're, you're not paramount, you're not shaving why it off. You stick the middle finger up to DCU. Absolutely. Yeah, it's <laughs> Warner Brothers, nah, you're gonna have to spend millions of dollars removing that. And I always Just laugh for about his upper lip. And I always laugh thinking, like, there's CGI artists that signed up for this movie thinking we're gonna be rendering crazy like alien battles and landscapes and explosions and stuff, and and instead they're told, nah, you've got to work on Henry Cavill's lips. Oh, you're <laughs> yeah. the Henry Cavill's lip department. Yeah, <laughs> just... congratulations on working on your first DC Universe movie. Uh, you're going to take on a very, very important role here. Uh, you and Henry Cavill's upper lip are going to become intimately familiar with each other, and I need you to remove it frame by frame. Thank you. I mean, maybe maybe they did a really shit job, and so like uh, you know they did it on purpose. Almost, it's like we've been given the worst role in the entire movie. We're just going to absolutely screw it up. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a great piece of cinema lore. <laughs> yes, I also learned <clears throat> another piece of cinema lore from you that Nick Cage was going to be Superman briefly. He was, he was, yeah, not so briefly for like three years. I think he was attached to it. Um, yeah, this was a piece of legendary uh, failure on Hollywood's part. They wanted to do another Superman movie. They wanted to cast a new, edgy, you know, cool actor, and Nick Cage was like super cool at the time uh it's hard to believe now but he was uh and so yeah he was attached to the project um it was going to have tim burton directing it uh unfortunately tim burton came in and decided he wanted to change the entire script it dragged on for years and eventually the studio interfered too much tim burton walked away nick cage walked away the whole project failed and i think they spent about 30 million dollars on a film that they didn't shoot a single frame of footage on incredible waste of money but there it is. That yeah, is so we wild. Could, well, what's even better is, like, if this movie had gone into production, the plan was that they were going to have a tie-in with the Joel Schumacher Batman movies at the time, which was the George Clooney one. Um, so you were going to have Nick Cage, George Clooney, you know, fighting crime together uh, and potentially even leading into a Justice League movie. And I just think that would have been fantastic. <laughs> Dude, goofy that. that would have been a good competitor for whatever the the non-snyder cut thing was that they ended up doing i uh, honestly yeah yeah when i think about how safe and boring and bland movies are now especially superhero ones i think something like that would be so shit but so amazing at the same time yes yes i don't know man i mean the the dcu generally is just I've never got into it. I've never, ever, ever felt as compelled. And I mean, you know, like Marvel's whatever. We're, what is it now? Uh, Generation four for Marvel? Five? Fa- the phase five they're into now, yeah. Phase phase five. I mean, that, that was bad. Endgame really was kind of the end <clears> game <throat> of all of the stuff that was good about that. But, I mean, that period that we had, we were so spoiled. When you actually look back at that, yeah, there was some kind of misses. But for the most part, that was a really great series of superhero movies. Big budget, quite classic storylines, compelling protagonists, good enemies. Uh, you, there's, there's humor in there, but it's not stupid. There's role models in there, but they're not patronizing. It was great. And then, yeah, it feels like we blew our load very soon. It's like the premature parade for the early 2010s. And now uh, we're left in this sort of wasteland looking for scraps on the floor. Yeah, I, I think um, 
it may be that superhero movies are now moving into the parody phase, which is generally the last phase of a, a genre before it dies off. Uh, and I'm fine with that. We've had 20 years of this stuff now, kind of ready for something else to, to, you know, take the center stage in Hollywood. Um, but yeah, whatever, <clears throat> whatever Marvel became, you know, however much they, they were probably victims of their own success and they've eventually gone off the rails. Um, we'll see if they maybe pick up in phase five, but. They at least flew before they crashed and burned, like whereas it feels like DC never got off the ground. And it's frustrating because they had, without doubt, the best characters. You know, before all of this, before Marvel took off, who the hell had ever heard of Iron Man or the Guardians of the Galaxy? Outside of the like comic book industry, outside of like people who are really into that stuff, who had ever heard of any of those characters? Who had heard of, you know, Captain America or anything? But Everyone had heard of Superman. Everyone heard of Batman. Everyone heard of Wonder Woman. DC had those characters. They had them ready to go. They could have been a genuine um, alternative to Marvel. You know, just some something on the same level, if not even bigger, uh, if they'd been properly managed. But they left it too late. They tried to play catch up. They rushed everything. They screwed it up, turn up, time after time. Um, and were constantly trying to fix their mistakes without understanding what the mistakes were. I think D- the DC on film over the past 10 years, that's going to go down as one of the biggest wastes of talent and time and money and potential in all of cinema history. What about this fallout from Justin Roiland recently? So for the people that don't know, one of the two writers, creators from yeah. Rick and Morty... Uh, has been popped for some pretty incriminating text messages to both women and girls. Uh, it seems like he's got an alcohol problem, and this has been going on for quite a long time, and it seems to be pretty widespread. He's kind of part of this. I've called. I've been calling it the uh, the second uh, Me Too or the Internet Me Too with Andrew Callahan from Chan- Channel Five, uh, Chris D'Elia with the Chris D'Elia problem documentary that just came out. Uh, Justin Roiland. You've got this sort of new wave of of guys that have kind of been popped by this. Um, it seems like Rick and Morty had already started to lose some of its core fan base in any case. Some people felt it was falling off the wagon. I feel like this might be a final nail in the coffin. Yeah, man. I, I, I agree. Like, I watched the first few seasons and I was entranced by it. It was super clever, witty, edgy, you know, just great fun. Great, um, great sort of sci-fi comedy. Uh, I think it, it, as it developed, it became more mainstream. And so it, it started to preach the message, which is, you know, obviously I've talked about a lot on my channel. Um, and it started to turn people off because it's like, it just became a sellout really. Um, and with Royland, yeah, man, like not only have you lost 50% of your writing team, but you've also lost literally the voice for Rick and Morty. So I don't really understand how the show is meant to continue without him. You know, it's just, uh, I forgot. I fucking forgot that he voices the two, <laughs> the two characters. How, how, how are you going to, it's like, yeah, you're Rick and Morty. How can we, how can we have Rick and Morty without Rick and Morty? Like, uh, well, you're not going to be able to, uh, two and a half men your way through by just swapping out one of the protagonists with this one. He, he is hmm. the protagonist. That's it. Yeah. I mean, you you probably get a voice actor who can approximate his his voice, but like people are going to know it's not the same. And 
Yeah, man, I just think this is the final nail in the coffin for Rick and Morty. I think it's just done. What a shame. What is coming out that you are most excited about over the next couple of years? Uh, so absolutely nothing. Uh, I hate all of modern cinema and I want it to die. <laughs> Yeah, fantastic. No, I mean, I I joke. Um, Probably Dune 2. I'll be interested to watch that because I very much enjoyed the first one. And uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's hopefully going to be good. You know, I've read the book and uh, and loved it like as a teenager. So it's it's nice to see a good adaptation on screen. Uh, So something like that. God, I'm trying to think of anything else really that's exciting me. Nothing from Marvel I care about. Oh, shit. Um, Have you seen uh, have you seen Severance? No, people have been recommending that to me, though. So I'm only one episode in. I'm only one episode in. uh, For the people that haven't heard about this, I don't even know what it is at the moment. It's, I guess, like a sort of science fiction-y drama. It's about uh, people that go to work at a particular place and they can't take their memories from inside of work outside or from outside inside. uh, And they have to sign this contract. And uh, I'm only one episode in. I, I was pretty enthralled by it to start with because there's a lot of questions why if these people agreed to this job all of the jobs that seem uh really kind of pointless you don't really understand what's going on so there's just a lot of questions so that's that's definitely that and the last of us um are mm. two things that i've been pretty impressed by recently but looking forward yeah. uh the, the the future sadly i fear might be as bleak as you're saying i don't know of anything really apart from watching uh, Harry Potter Hogwarts Legacy playthrough videos on YouTube. There isn't much that I've been uh, ridiculously excited by. I mean, I'll, I'll be ex- I'll be happy to watch uh, Cobra Kai season six because I think that's going to be the final season. Um, House of the Dragon season two. I'll be I'll be interested in the next Stranger Things because that that's a show that really redeemed itself as well. That really came back from the brink. Uh, so probably TV is going to be the more exciting thing for me, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's um, that's been what's salvaged a lot of. Uh, I mean, look at my watch time. Like, if I go on and you go onto Netflix, I'm not going on to movies if I'm struggling. You know, when you're deep in the Netflix hole, desperately trying to find mm. something, I'm going into either documentaries or series. I'm just never going into movies because I very, very rarely find a movie that just makes me feel satisfied or gives a payoff at the end. But yeah, I'm I have hope. Uh, despite the incredibly despondent uh, way to look to the future, I do have hope with this, whatever you want to say, like the drinkers lagging hypothesis or the production lagging hypothesis that you've come up with, which is in three years' time. One one thing that I do want to know, actually, is you said that parody is the final stage of a, a cycle of a genre. Is this mm. a, a well-understood... Journey. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, it's generally seen as, I can't remember who wrote it originally, but it's the genre theory that the, I think there's four stages to it. So the first stage is like the, the early kind of, you know, prototype stage of a genre, like the, the ones that become breakthrough movies and clue people into the idea that uh, it, it could be a, a viable thing. Uh, then you've got like the um, maturity stage where um, it's... Uh, it kind of reaches its golden e golden age, like where like ideas start to mature. Uh, they get really good at producing the movies. Then you've got the um, deconstruction phase where they start to explore, 
you know, different ideas. Like they're they're always looking for new angles on this genre. Uh, and then last of all, you got the parody phase. So it's kind of like we we pioneer it, we perfect it, we um, tinker with it and take it apart, and then we just have a laugh at it and mock it, and then we're done. That's that's that the four like stages of Iron Man into the most of the MCU from the 2010s into Endgame into Thor: Love and Thunder. Yeah, I, I would say that would probably be your yeah your your best way of looking at it. Um, you can you can kind of apply it to the Western genre. That's what is your good example. You know, your early ones would be your John Wayne movies. Uh, then you get your, you know, your your um, sort of classic ones with him, uh, and then you get your sort of Clint Eastwood spaghetti western ones, which is like the deconstructed hero, uh, and then you get your parody ones like Blazing Saddles and stuff like that, and then it's just done, you know. So, uh, yeah, we're we're at the parody phase now. I feel like with superhero movies, like whether it's intentional or not, like most Marvel movies are just parodies now um, of of what they once were, and uh, I'm more than happy for that genre to to wind up now and just we can move on to something else because I'm getting really tired of reviewing superhero movies <laughs> you yeah, know, in the I, I imagine i imagine that you can be yeah taking it out back and putting a bolt in its head might be a, a good idea look drink it dude i really appreciate you where should people go if they want to check out more of your stuff your youtube's absolutely fascinating so everyone should go and look at that yeah, uh, so I'm, obviously I'm producing new YouTube videos on both my channels like every couple of days. I do live streams every Thursday night on Open Bar. Um, you can find me on Twitter as well. And I've also got a bunch of stuff that I'm working on at the moment. Uh, I've got a whole bunch of novels that I've written called the Ryan Drake series. Uh, and I've got a comic that's uh, recently come out and it's through Indiegogo that you can order that. So that's called A New Kind of War. Uh, so those are all the things I'm working on right now, and also a short movie that I'm producing. So that's been fun busy, as well. Busy guy, yeah. Cool. <laughs> Excited for you. Thank you. All right, man. Thank you for your time today. Cheers. Cheers.